Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. My interview today is with Tom Hartman. Tom is a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times best-selling author with 33 books to his credit, and America's number one progressive talk radio show host. In this conversation, we discuss his latest book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. We talk about how the erosion of privacy threatens democracy and innovation, makes companies vulnerable to cyber theft, and what company and governmental leaders need to do to protect their organizations and citizens. Tom, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Hey, Don, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Let's start out with your background and why you got interested in the topic of privacy. You know, in the 1960s, when I was a teenager, I was very involved with the Students for Democratic Society at MSU, and we were infiltrated by the state police. And in fact, we learned a couple of years later as a consequence of a lawsuit that the one guy in our group who was constantly trying to get us to go burn down the ROTC building was the state cop. He was the guy. And that really, you know, that was like an early lesson. I mean, that really stuck with me. And you can argue whether that has to do with privacy or not. It certainly has to do with Big Brother, in my opinion, and you know, which is a piece of this whole zeitgeist, this whole issue, I guess, would be a more appropriate way to say it. So, arguably, that's where my interest started. I, I, I suppose, you know, you know, you could go back to being ten years old and discovering your best friend's father's Playboy stash. I mean, you know, privacy is something that I think everybody gets, right? At at some level from some some time in their life. It's not like there was some blinding moment of revelation. It's always been something that's a high value. And I think it's a high value for our entire country. And and what is that value? Why is it important to protect individual privacy? You know, there's that that old saying that your right to swing your arm ends at the tip of my nose. We're we're watching, you know, that's like personal space uh, kind of thing, you know, we have a we have a boundary essentially. We're on an international level. We're seeing that play out with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think that that's all in the physical world. I think in the in in the world of emotion and psychology and and interpersonal relations and 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 politics and government relations. There's also that need to respect boundaries. To, to respect, you know, okay, that's yours, this is mine, and, and I'm not going to take that or get in that or get in your stuff unless you give permission to. So that's, that's the frame, or that I, frame, I suppose, that I would put it in. In your book, The Hidden History of Big Brother in America, you talk about social cooling. And I found this really interesting. And, and one of the arguments that you make is that we're not able to grow when our privacy is completely invaded. And could could you just expand on that a little bit? Because I think that's really an important point to make here. Yeah, this social cooling concept came out of you know a, a number of studies that found that when people knew that they were being observed, their behavior measurably changed, and in ways that were in, in fact often fairly predictable. And and frankly, anybody who owns a pet knows exactly what I'm talking about. You know, if uh, your dog is thinking about sneaking the the, the, the food off the counter. He's not going to do that when you're watching. And this is this is not just human nature. This is this is living thing nature that that we are conscious of being observed. 
and we alter our behavior as a consequence of that. Now, if you add to the consciousness of being observed, the consciousness of a potential threat to yourself associated with being observed, then it becomes even more significant, even more powerful, even more problematic. And, you know, which is what George Orwell wrote about back in, in his novel, the 1984, which he wrote about in the 1940s, as I recall. And that's one of the things that we see in authoritarian regimes. And, and frankly, that we saw in the 60s with drug arrests of people who were politically active. And later Haldeman came out and said, you know, uh, when he was asked uh, by a reporter about Nixon's war on drugs, he said, we didn't, we never cared about the drugs. You know, our, our, we knew that hippies were smoking pot, and black people were using heroin. And our goal was to criminalize those to the point where we could disrupt their communities and, and essentially terrify them. And that was, you know, an example of that, that, that the, 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 the need to have some sense of personal autonomy is just like, you know, critical to any kind of political activity in particular. And so autocratic regimes don't just observe people. They go out of their way to make sure that people know that they're being observed. And then you get the social cooling effect where suddenly everybody around you is no longer talking about how bad the government is or, you know, that dictator who's in office or whatever the issue of the day may be. And you start assuming that you're the outlier. You're, you're the, you must be the one who's, you know, and, and Hitler did this uh, very effectively. And I, I, back in the, uh, the early 30s, radio programs, uh, radio stations all over Germany would, on a, on a daily basis, read lists of names of people who had been turned in by their neighbors for being disloyal. So what, you know, what are you going to do when you hear that? You hear that your neighbor, you know, didn't get arrested, didn't get, you know, nobody went over and lit their house on fire, but they got publicly humiliated. Are you going to then speak up against the regime? Probably not. And so, you know, there are people who say, well, yeah, you know, so there's, you know, cameras everywhere and everybody knows what I'm doing and I don't care. I got nothing to hide. It's, it's just too facile a response. The reality is that social cooling is a destructive force, particularly in a democracy. You and I both lived in Germany. I think you lived there in the 80s, and I, I yep. lived there a little bit later, 94 to 95. And you're aware of, of what happened in East Germany with all of the spying. And, and I, I came there a little bit later, but maybe, maybe you could talk about what happened to the culture in East Germany? Because I think that is where, where we could be headed if, if we're not careful with this. I agree. I, I think one of the all-time great movies that I've seen in my whole entire life, and it's probably influenced by the fact that I used to live right on the East German border, you know, when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union, is a, a movie called The Lives of Others. And it's in German. It's subtitled. Uh, you can, I think it's on Netflix. It's easy to find. I would put it up there as top five movie all time. Unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's okay. a yeah, really yeah. wonderful, wonderful movie. It really is. It's mind boggling. And Don, it's really rare that I encounter people who know what I'm talking about when I talk about that movie, because it was kind of a one month sensation back in the, I think in the 90s when it came out. But it's just an amazing movie. And, and, and what you get from, and, and the movie's about, you know, the life of a couple of families in East Germany and how basically the government, uh, one of the main employment programs that the East German government had was that they had hired one third of the country to spy on the other two thirds of the country. And I'm not talking about, you know, this town spying on that town. It was like person to person, person by person by person. 
And uh, you never knew if a member of your family was in the employ of the government and was spying on your family on behalf of the government or spying on the neighbors on behalf of the government. And, you know, I, I had the, the, an experience that I tell about in the book where um, the first time that I went to East Berlin with my oldest daughter, this was in, in the winter of 1986. And, uh, you know, we came out of Checkpoint Charlie and you, you actually come out of the underground because you take the subway over there, or a long tunnel through it. And uh, not, uh, it's like a subway tunnel and came up on the street and, and we stood there in the freezing cold waiting for about 10 minutes for a cab. And finally, this gypsy cab pulls up and this young guy introduces himself and said his name was Tostin. And, uh, you know, and, and he said, you know, we've got to. He said the cab drivers, you know, because they work for the government, they don't actually show up and work. They're all sitting drinking coffee. But if you want a cab ride, if you want a, you know, a tour of East Berlin, I'll give you one for 25 bucks or whatever it was, American. And I, we were like, cool. And then as soon as we get in the car, he's like, you know, what I'm doing is illegal. So we've got to come up with a cover story if I get stopped by the police. So let's say that you're my long lost cousin from America with your daughter. And I'm your, you know, your father's sister's whatever, you know, he had this whole elaborate story. And, and so in order to be able to deal with the police, if we got arrested, he had to know all about me, right? You know, where were you born? What do you do for a living? You know, how many kids are, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just, you know, for the four hours that we spent with this guy, I think he ended up probably knowing more about me than any human being on earth has ever, you know, outside of my family. And it just, it all seemed, it was all so smooth. It was also kind of natural and he would be, and he seemed so interested. He was a brilliant interrogator. And it wasn't until we got back to West Germany and I was telling a friend of mine about this that, uh, who said, oh, you spent the whole day with a KGB agent. I was like, really? <laughs> so yeah, we, we uh, you know, hopefully we never get there in this country, but it's not, uh, it's not all that unusual. It, this happens in a lot of autocracies. In fact, I'd say probably the majority of autocracies around the world. One of the things that I found interesting looking at East Germany as an example is that people are living in fear or people were living in fear at that time. There's a squelching of creativity in innovation, in debate, in anything that deviates from the norm that I think makes in in our case, America, an incredible country to live in. Those, those freedoms, that ability to express yourself, to create, to, to live without fear. And, and so I guess that's, this is a good place to kind of talk about how our privacy is being eroded, not only in the United States, but all around the world. And we'll talk about specific examples that companies are using and governments are using. But could you just talk about at a high, high level how privacy is being eroded? Well, on the government side, largely as a consequence of 9-11, there had been these legislative attempts for years floating around to basically give government spying agencies the power to spy on Americans. But after 9-11, it got all, all the worst parts of it got jammed together into one piece of legislation called the Patriot Act. Who, would, who wouldn't want to vote for the Patriot Act? And in that, you know, kind of one fell swoop, we moved a lot closer to that East, German, East Germany that, you know, you and I were talking about a moment ago. On the corporate side, what has happened is that as the internet grew in the late 90s and throughout the early 2000s, 
people were trying to come up with business models. How do, how do we monetize this thing? How do we make money out of it? And of course, there was the old fashioned membership thing. I used to run forums for CompuServe. People paid seven bucks a month to be a CompuServe member. Um, AOL did the same thing. This was before HTML became a thing. And, and there was the advertising model of, you know, there are websites that sell advertising. But, you know, some, some really smart people figured out that they could sell you. They could sell me. They could sell us, not to us, but sell us your life, your daily experiences, your desires, your fears, your hopes and dreams, all were things that could be turned into money. And, and so they started collecting that. And that is, you know, the principal business model of Facebook and Google and, and so many of these other organizations where they give you a free product. You know, you can have free email, but we read every one of your messages. You can have uh, free contact with all your friends and family, but, you know, we're reading every one of your messages and keeping very careful track of what you say and what you think and what you worry about. And then we can sell you to other people. And then, of course, the, the more egregious examples, and I chronicle those at some substantial length in the book, of companies that sell services to landlords, to retail stores, to employers, to banks, to car dealers where you know they will tell them uh, such granular detail about that these organizations these companies airlines for example they'll decide how quickly they're going to take your call based on this private information that they buy from these companies that would tell them if you're the kind of person who regularly might be inclined to fly or if you aren't if you aren't expect to wait on hold for an hour if you have the potential to, to be a, a frequent flyer if you have a passport, if you travel to foreign countries, if you speak a second language, your, your phone call will get answered more quickly. Or if you're calling to complain about something or if you're trying to return a product in a store, um, you will get very different responses based on the information that these companies provide to, to these, these folks who interact with customers. And I think that's uh, completely out of control here in the United States. The European Union has put some pretty, I was going to say radical, but I, I, instead I'd say common sense. Uh, limits on the ability of companies to do this kind of thing. But this is the Wild West here in the United States. What specifically is the U.S. federal government gathering? Well, nobody knows for sure. <laughs> but, it, you know, Ed, Ed Snowden pulled back the curtain a decade ago, and we got a pretty shocking look at, at what they were gathering. And the, and the tools weren't even that good then. When you think about the technologies that are available today and how they can be used to gather information about us, I know in the book you talked about stingrays. I really wasn't familiar with them until a previous podcast episode that I did. And I was just amazed at this technology and how easily it can be deployed or, you know, uh, satellite technology that could be recording our conversation right now if they knew uh, where we were. Just, you know, yeah. the, the, the powerful technologies like that. Uh, but, but you mentioned Snowden and, you know, what... What did he reveal? And then how do you think that has grown in terms of intrusiveness since that time? I think that, um, well, first of all, you, you mentioned stingrays. Let me just tell people what we're talking about here, if you don't mind. Um, th these are devices that do what's called a man in the middle attack. Um, you're walking down the street with your cell phone in your pocket and your cell phone is connected to the cell tower uh, for your carrier. So you've got Verizon, your cell phone is talking to Verizon. 
And if you walk in range of a stingray, the stingray is broadcasting a signal on the same frequency that Verizon uses or the same frequency band with a phony identifier as if it was Verizon. And so your phone sees that as the stronger signal available to it. And so it migrates to it because phones are constantly doing this. And the back end of the Stingray is connected to the internet. And um, so, and, and, you know, a VoIP kind of system. So if you make a phone call, your phone call still goes through. If you pick up your phone and you look on the internet, it still goes through. If you send or receive email, it still goes through. The problem is that it's all going through the Stingray, the man in the middle. And as such, they can record every little bit of data. They can see all the content of your phone. Um, but that's, that's a pretty damn intrusive thing. Now, now that the word is out about these things, here we are a decade later, we're discovering that police departments all over the United States are using these. In some cases, they'll have 10 or 15 of them, a single police department. And you know they, they'll, they'll deploy them wherever they, they want to snoop on people. Um, you would think there'd be a law. It, it doesn't seem like that's legal. It seems like it's, you know, I, I'm not a legal expert. So how are they circumventing that? That, that does not seem legal to me. It doesn't seem, it doesn't seem legal to me either, but it is being done. Um, I, my understanding is that when police departments do it to target an individual, that they do get warrants and that the, the, the type of warrant they have is very, very broad. They're not supposed to, you know, and, and if say they're going after a guy who lives next door to you and they put a car out and, you know, in the, in the alley behind your house for three or four days to, you know, with a stingray unit in the trunk that's just sucking down everything and they suck up your information along with it, they're not supposed to look at. Yeah. One, one of the things in your book that is really remarkable is you just list out a, a number of things that companies might be gathering about individuals address history, social security number, birth date of family members, presence of an elderly parent, do you speak Spanish, are you a veteran, voting registration. There's a list of three, four pages in the book. When I saw this, I was just shocked at the amount of detail and how that can be used to manipulate and to drive behavior, because that, that ultimately is what people are trying to get or companies are trying to get at, or maybe even the federal government is, is drive behavior or uh, modify behavior. And that to me is quite frightening because the tools that we're all using to conduct business and to communicate can be rather manipulative, manipulative if there's the right programmer on the back end. Is that how you see things in terms of how this information is being used by companies? Yes. And, and the list that I put in the book is a publicly available list of, of one of the more, one of the smaller databases that are, that are, you know, basically for sale anywhere in the country. And you said it was um, from 2014. It's 2022 right, right now. That's, that's eight years later. That's, and who right. knows what, uh, what is available. Yeah, and the list in the book is just a you know a couple thousand things, or maybe even a few hundred. I'm, I, I don't recall the exact uh, word count on it. But um, now these companies that, and I, I mentioned this in the book, you know, the companies that are selling rental information or selling information about you to landlords, or the companies that are selling information about you to banks or car dealers or or uh, you know fill in the blank. Um, most of them are bragging that they have at least 15,000 data points on you. Some of them are bragging that they have 20 to 30,000 data points on you. So they literally know what's your favorite soft drink. 
What, you know, what do you order most often in restaurants? Um, what kind of foods do you not like? Um, you know, what kind of people did you date as a teenager? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, this is how insanely granular some of this stuff is. So where can we go to see what these companies have on us? There was a piece in the New York Times about two years ago uh, about uh, a couple of the big data collection companies that that said, here's how to get your information, because they were required uh, by some law at some time to get. And I tried to get my information from several of them, and they make you jump through so many hoops. And then when you finally do get the information, it is completely unpacked. It, it's like this giant data dump of, of what looks like random crap. It, it, you know, including lots and lots of code numbers that that make no sense. You would have to translate. Oh, that code number means I own a motorcycle. Well, how do I know that? You know, you don't. And so, uh, in theory, uh, under the law, um, in most cases, that information should be available to you. In actual practice, it's not. But let's talk about the dangers at the individual level. Just me as a citizen. What dangers do I have as a result of my information being out there, either to a government, state or local government, federal government, or either even another country's government? And what threats do I have as a result of companies having access to this information? The, the loss of privacy is an increase in vulnerability. I mean, I, I think that's just the simplest way to, to boil it down. Um, vulnerability to being marketed to in a way that will catch your attention and draw you in and make you a customer, uh, vulnerability to being exploited, vulnerability to being harassed, <laughs> vulnerability to being discriminated against. Um, you know, it, and, and usually this stuff is sold as the exact opposite. It's like, well, if we have enough information about you, we can find the perfect job for you. Uh, or we'll, we'll deliver the perfect product to you, or we know what you want based on your reading history, and we know what you want based on your purchase history. Um, and it's sold to us as a benefit, but it's really a vulnerability. And that's what I'm trying to do with this book is, is reestablish the frame uh, to what, how we understood a loss of privacy prior to the advent of the internet, because there was a broad cultural consensus in America and most Western countries prior to the mid to late 90s, that privacy was an essential thing and that you own your own data, that, that you, should, you should have some personal integrity, that, that boundary, that, that skin layer extends to basically your own personal history. I saw an interview with FBI Director Ray recently and one of the things they talked about is how Chinese nationals are being manipulated. And, uh, you know, they're, they may be working in the United States or another country around the world. And if they are in a position to steal company data, um, they're being manipulated to do that. So pressure is being put on their family members back in China and, and things of that nature. And so I think that's one example of how we need to be aware of this at the corporate level as well. Can you think of any other ways in which companies specifically can be threatened as a result of privacy being eroded in the country? Well, there is this thing called trade secrets. And, you know, companies try to gain advantages over other companies by knowing things that other companies don't know. Knowledge is power, as the old saying goes. And, and so, you know, at that level, 
individual companies need privacy as much as you and I do. And this is particularly important for small businesses who are very, very vulnerable to large companies coming in and either squashing them like a bug or buying them up. Can you talk about the invasion of privacy and the relationship to cybersecurity and, and cyber terror? Because that's a part in your book that I find really, really important. I, I think the next war is going to be basically a cyber war. Right? You know, there's this, this old uh, theory of warfare that um, as technology changes, the, every war uses the most recent technology available to it. Um, it we used nuclear in, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in '45. And, and I think that was the end of nuclear war as an era. And now we're in the cyber war. And we saw this, and I you know, lay it all out in the book. We saw this uh, being done by the Russians against the Ukrainians back in uh, the early parts of this decade, or the last decade. Um, in terms of cyber terror, uh, you've got two major actors there. One are countries that just want to mess with us, us being the United States broadly and individuals within as part of it, but um, probably the larger group of actors, and sometimes these are nation states, North Korea is notorious for this, for example, um, sometimes their principal goal is economic, and thus you get the, the, the spyware, uh, or, or more commonly, you get the, uh, the malware that, that locks you out of your computer, you know, the, the ransomware. And, uh, you know, this can ruin your life in a big way. Uh, or your company's life. What should leaders be doing at the corporate level to prepare their organizations, prepare their people to protect the organization? Make sure that you're within your company, that people who work in the company are using appropriate uh, steps to access information um, and are uh, well-educated about the dangers of things like phishing. Uh, you know, where you get emails, the, you know, uh, that, that send you off to virus sites and things like that. And, and of course, using antivirus software, um, it's, it's relatively straightforward, but it does require some education. I mean, I, I don't think every company needs to hire a cybersecurity firm to do this. Uh, obviously the larger companies do, or they do it internally, but, um, there, there are, you've got the threat from competitors, you've got the threat from malicious actors who are trying to just steal your information so that they can either sell it or the, so that they can hack your bank account. And you've got the threat from people who are just, you know, who may uh, view a, a, one way to compete with you as being damaging you. Um, or, and then I suppose you just have people who get, you know, pleasure out of malicious activity. Um, but, uh, you know, those are, at least off the top of my head, the principal categories that a a company, particularly a small business, would have to be concerned about. What do leaders need to be doing at the federal government level? We need to be taking this stuff seriously. Um, we've had this laissez-faire attitude that you know came along. The marketplace will solve everything and government shouldn't be involved. And it's not the role of government to be the nanny state and protect everybody and make sure that everybody's nice and safe and secure. You know, that's, that's on you. And uh, frankly, the, the average person, just, just like the average person, shouldn't be treating their own, you know, pneumonia or cancer diagnosis. Uh, the average person in this day and age, you know, cybersecurity and, and um, living in this uh, newly intrusive privacy, uh, low privacy world, and not just online, but, you know, in general, um, 
is is about as complex as as medicine. Uh, it's not simple stuff to understand these things. I mean, you have a background in this, Don. You know what I'm talking about, and and so that brings us back to not just the the, the need to educate people, but also the need to make sure that our laws uh, reflect the needs for safety and protection of our people, and that our law enforcement agencies both have the tools and the willingness to enforce those laws, and in a way that doesn't abuse them, you know, that doesn't go around them. We were talking about earlier with you know small town cops and stingrays. Yeah, my my concern is that these are trillion dollar companies. Many of these companies that have this type of information on us. And you know, Facebook, they've obviously taken a hit recently, and their their market cap has fallen to six hundred five hundred billion dollars. But that's still an enormous amount of money and, and a huge valuation. Google's over a trillion dollars. Apple and, and Amazon are as well. I, I, we've allowed these companies to snoop on us. Every element of our lives, what, what I fear is how do we dial this back? The, these companies are so rich and powerful, and I don't even think they flex their lobbying powers to the full extent if we did try to, to reel this back. Is the genie out of the bottle here, or can we, can we dial this back? I don't know. I hope not. I mean, I, I hope that we haven't gone past a point of turn. Uh, Apple and it, using the examples you mentioned, the, the kind of fang companies, uh, Apple and, and um, Amazon actually sell products. And so they're, they're gathering information generally with the consent of their users to the benefit of, in, in theory, to the benefit of their users, um, but broadly with the consent of their users. And, and Apple in particular has gotten very sensitive about that. And they've gotten far more open in what they gather and what you can you know, block and can't block. Facebook and Google, on the other hand, don't sell a product. You are the product. They're, they're entirely in the business of monetizing your life and my life. And um, so I think that the remedies might be slightly different um, with regard to those two. There's also uh, huge issues of antitrust that speak to the political power that these companies have as a consequence of their economic power. And, uh, and I don't think that you can disentangle that. I mean, I wrote a whole book about that, the, 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 you know, the hidden history of uh, American monopolies. And uh, monopolies tie into this in a, in a very big way. And one of the ways that monopolies uh, maintain their power is through the, that old nostrum that knowledge is power. And so we want all of it. <laughs> we want to know as much as possible. Um, I, it, the, it, probably the, the top guy in Congress on this is Ron White. He keeps talking about this and, and you know, how in the, in the U.S. Senate and how, how uh, under the microscope we are and how, how much of our information is available and how wrong it is. And he's proposed some pretty good legislation. It's just that you know, there's no fire. There's, you know, there's not a broad societal consensus that, oh, my God. And, and that's uh, something that I'm trying to ignite with this book. Two final thoughts for you. We, we started by talking about East Germany a little bit at the beginning of the, the interview. And, you know, that's the 60s, 70s and 80s and the incredible invasion of privacy there, the, the data gathering. We talked about how privacy has been eroded in the United States and other countries around the world. I wanted to ask you about China for two reasons. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned the FBI director, Ray, the interview 
Um, he was asked about China having enough data to create a dossier for every American adult. So that's the first question is, uh, you know, how would they use it? And then the second question related to China is, you know, can you talk about the social scoring that they have in place and how they're using them? The summer before last, the last year of the Trump administration, 2020, just down the road from us in this little town called Klamath Falls, Oregon, a whole bunch of guys uh, came out one Saturday night uh, in the town square with shovels and axes and shotguns and hammers, uh, ready to have a battle with the busloads of black people that, uh, of Antifa black people that George Soros had rented in Portland and was going to send to their little town to set the town on fire and rape the women. Um, as best as anybody can tell, that by the way, that happened in over a hundred cities in America the same night, all small towns. And as far as anybody can tell, that was mostly organized on Facebook or at least on social media more generally, and probably came from outside the United States. So what is this? Is this a is this somebody testing how easily they can manipulate us? I mean, you know, this is the age of that. I think, I think to some extent we're seeing that being played out on the world stage too. Um, so that's, that's a concern and that's an example of the ways that, you know, the data that other countries have on us could be used and exploited. And frankly, they don't have to spy on us to get it. They can buy it from American corporations if they want. Um, and, and then um, what was the second the part? China the China social score. Oh, the social scoring, yeah. Um, in China, they, they have you know, this, you get a social score. It, it's, it's a, it, you know, here we have a credit score. It's probably the closest analogy. You know, is your, is your credit score 730? Is it 812? Is it not? And there's even, you know, the, the, ironically, the people who keep the credit score are now selling you a service to improve your credit score, uh, which I, I think is bizarre and probably should be illegal, but in any case. Um, so China does the same thing, only it's not how credit worthy are you? It's how worthy are you of being considered a, a patriotic citizen in, in the People's Republic? And uh, it includes things like, you know, are you, do you drive badly? Um, have you ever been late for a restaurant in reservation? Uh, have you ever had a fight with your neighbor? Have you ever had a run in with the police? You know, the obvious stuff, the police, how did you do in school? What does your employer think of you? But there's all these kind of subtle things that feed into it that cause people to, you know, this is back to the, where we started with social cooling, cause people to behave in ways that, you know, the government finds more socially acceptable. And this is uh, very much the dystopia that George Orwell imagined and or a, a dimension of. And, and I think it's something that uh, in America, people are not taking seriously. They're, the assumption is, oh, that'll never happen here. That would never happen anywhere. Nobody would put up with that. I, I think most Americans have no idea what the social, you know, even that this exists in China, this whole social scoring system. But it determines whether you're going to get a job. It determines whether you're going to be able to rent an apartment in a particular part of town. It determines who you're going to marry in some cases. Um, you know, it, it determines whether a dating service will take you on as a client or not. Um, it's it's like that granular, uh, you know, this this government program really micromanaging your life based on your behavior. And uh, that's uh, that's something that I think everybody should be concerned about and should know about. Yeah, it's absolutely frightening. Tom, should privacy be a human right? You can answer yes or no. 
Yeah. And I, and I think it, I think we identified it as one in the fourth amendment of the constitution. Where can people learn more about you and find your book? Uh, the book you can find in any bookstore, any place that sells books. Um, you know, the, the hidden history of big brother in America. And uh, my my information you can find at hartmanreport.com or at tomhartman.com and however you spell it, we'll get you there. Awesome conversation. Tom, thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses. In our next episode, I interview Dave Ulrich. Dave has been called the father of human resources. And while he may modestly deny that moniker, his teaching, writing, speaking, and consulting certainly place him toward the top of the list of people influencing the way we work. Dave and I discuss what makes a great leader with a focus on what's required to lead through crisis situations. That episode will be released May 10th, 2022. Thank you to Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of our production team at GL Pro in London. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.